Yesterday, I, um, I was over at the, the thrift store back here, and uh, I, I bought a, a book. And when I came home, I, I opened up the book, and I, I found uh, some stuff inside of it. And, and one of the things I found was a syllabus. Uh, the other thing I found, um, this is math... 1114 from Florida International University. And as you can see here, there's, there's quite a lot of red. Um, quite a lot of red. Uh, and that's never good when you get a test back. This is somebody's test. Um, and I, I won't say his name because you know, I don't want that to go on public record, but it, it's actually on there. Uh, he scored a 7 out of 60. Oh my gosh. 7 out of 60. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I got to thinking about that and wondering, um, if I have, do I know what that feels like uh, to get a 7 out of 60? And, um, you know, it, not in recent memory, thankfully, but, you know, there, there was probably a time when, um, when that, that was very much like me. Uh, you know, when, whenever you think that you really know something, you know, uh, the, the way to really find out if you do is to be tested, Right. In this case, um, this, this guy who, who took this test failed miserably, and uh, I know that there have been tests that I've taken on which I've failed miserably. Well, today we're going to take a look at the disciples uh, getting tested by the master teacher, and we'll see how, how they do. Uh, you know, the Bible frequently describes God as being a jealous God. And honestly, that's something that makes a lot of people kind of uncomfortable. It's troubling for a lot of people. And I think that goes back to people not understanding the biblical uh, definition of jealousy. In our minds, you know, in, in the way that we use jealousy, it's, it's a bad thing. Jealousy is a bad thing. But the fact is, we, we don't use the term in a biblical sense. And there's a sense that the Bible uses it in, and then there's a sense that I think we use it in, and I don't think they match up, and so that leads to a lot of confusion. Uh, for example, let's say that you and I are walking down the street. We're in downtown Seattle walking down the street, and all of a sudden, somebody pulls up in a Bentley. You know, those things cost like a quarter million dollars or something anyway. And the, the, the guy jumps out, some guy jumps out, and he puts $10 in my hand. And I'm thinking, man, that's, that's pretty cool. That's, you know, that's a couple drinks at Starbucks, a couple cups of coffee at Starbucks, or, uh, you know, who knows, 10 bucks. It's 10 bucks that I didn't have before. And then they turn to you, and he starts counting 100, 200, 300, 400, all the way up to 10,000. And then he jumps back in his Bentley, and he drives off. He says, I just won the lottery, and I was feeling generous, and, you know, I, I just saw you guys, and... Uh, yeah, Nancy, the next time you want to do this random acts of kindness thing, you know, there's an idea for you. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, all of a sudden, that $10 in my hand isn't looking so good anymore, right? And so, in, in our understanding of it, what we might say is, you're just jealous, right? And anybody with me here? Would you, you'd say, you're just jealous of the fact that I have $10,000 and you have $10, right? Because I'm wishing that I had what is rightfully yours. But this is not the biblical definition of the term jealousy. You see, when, when you're jealous by the biblical definition of the jealous, you are wanting something that rightfully belongs to you. You're wanting something that rightfully belongs to you. When you're covetous, that's when you're wanting something that does not rightfully belong to you. Do you see the difference? There's a big difference between being covetous and being jealous. And so when the Bible says that God is a jealous God, you know, we might think that's a bad thing using our understanding of what jealousy is. But the fact is, it's not a bad thing. 
because God wants what is rightfully his. Uh, Oprah Winfrey, for example, rejected the Christian God because the Bible says that God is a jealous God. And so she concluded, well, okay, jealousy and love are diametrically opposed. God can't be both. So the Christian God, who's a jealous God, I reject. That, that was Oprah Winfrey's uh, conclusion because she thought that they were incompatible, that jealousy is incompatible with love. But to the contrary, biblical jealousy flows out of love because jealousy is something that we feel when something that belongs to us is removed from our possession. Jealousy is not a bad thing in that sense. For example, a spouse who doesn't feel a tinge of jealousy when their other spouse is off committing adultery. There's something wrong there, right? You would expect the spouse to feel some type of jealousy, and that's usually the sense that we, we would you know, use the term jealousy in. But the fact is, the reason that there's jealousy, and in the biblical sense that's the right word to use, is because the, the one spouse belongs to the other, and if there's infidelity going on, it shows that there's a lack of commitment, there's a lack of love, and that's not a good thing. See, if, if there's no jealousy, it's because there's no love. It's because the one person doesn't want what belongs to them. On the other hand, if you look at something that isn't rightfully yours but belongs to somebody else and you find yourself longing for it, that's not jealousy. That is coveting. And see, there's a huge difference. Jealousy is a noble quality. It's desirable. Uh, we can be sure of that much because God is jealous and God is love. He can be both. It's compatible. One leads to the other. Coveting, on the other hand, is not a noble quality. It's an evil quality. It's so universally evil, in fact, that it's listed in the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not covet, right? Exodus chapter 20, verse 17 uh, says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his donkey or his ox or his donkey or just in case that doesn't cover it or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You see, when it comes to God, we shouldn't be dismayed or disappointed to learn that God is jealous for us, for our hearts. Rather, we should be amazed that the God who created the universe would connect himself so intimately, so lovingly to humanity that he would become jealous for us when we stray from him. When our hearts aren't where they're supposed to be, he would be jealous because our hearts belong to him. That's how deeply he loves us. Now, it's important that we see the difference between coveting and jealousy, because in our lesson today, we're actually going to come back to that. We're going to come full circle back to this. Uh, and I, so I wanted to make sure that we understood the difference between jealousy and coveting. Now, to refresh our memories and bring us up to speed on what's been happening here in our, uh, our text in the book of Mark, Jesus has sent the 12 disciples out, right, multiplying the presence of his ministry, and he sends them out uh, to preach a message of repentance and to give them the authority to cast out unclean spirits and to heal people who are sick. And he sent them out with power, right? He sent them out with power, not their power, but with his power, power that came from him. And they had been faithful to do uh, to what they'd been asked to do. To, they were faithful to go out and see the power of God working through them in various villages. And they'd come back, you know, and they're all excited, you know, they're pumped up, they're psyched, and, you know, they're feeling awfully good about themselves. You know, look at what I did. Look at what I was able to do. And in fact, they didn't just feel good about themselves, they became prideful. 
seeing the, not seeing Jesus as their master, but all of a sudden, because they were doing all the same things that Jesus had been doing, now Jesus is their equal in their mind. And in response to their prideful attitudes, Jesus said, guys, you, you need a break. Let's hit the water and we'll go to the other side. And so they go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus performed the miracle of feeding 5,000 men. And who knows how many women and children uh, were there as well. Of course, like we talked about last week, it's somewhere between fifteen and 25,000 people probably that he fed with five loaves and two fish. And despite that, despite seeing all of that, the, the disciples were audacious enough to give Jesus the advice to send these people home and let them find food for themselves. And you would have thought that seeing this miracle, seeing all of these multitudes of people be fed from nothing, would have been, you know, that would have been enough to put them back in their place. I think if I would have been in their shoes, I would have been thinking, okay, there's something kind of weird going on here, and I'm just going to, I'll just go with what he says. But no, they don't get brought back to their senses. You would think that this would put them in their place, a place where they don't view Jesus as their homie. You ever seen those t-shirts, Jesus is my homie? Man, I, I hate those shirts. No, Jesus is not your homie. Jesus is sovereign Lord. So let's take a look at what happens. We start in Mark chapter 6, verses 45 and 46. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. So obviously, it's, it's very late in the afternoon. The sun is uh, probably on the horizon at this point. Now remember that uh, at the time that Jesus had miraculously fed the people, Mark had told us twice that it's quite late. Uh, he used it twice just in case we missed it the first time, I guess. But at this point, the people have finished eating, and some of them are heading home, and a lot of them are sticking around. Uh, so it's, it's Jesus, it's the Twelve, and it's we don't know how many people who are sticking around uh, haven't gone home quite yet. So Mark tells us that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. Jesus made them get in the boat. Now, that's really an interesting word, this word made. Um, It's a Greek word that Mark uses only uh, one time in his narrative, and that's, of course, right here. Uh, This word means to force or to compel. It's a term, for example, that Paul used when he was giving his, his testimony, and he's talking about how he used to persecute Christians in the early church. He said in Acts chapter 26, verse 11, and as I punished them, these, these early believers, as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. He's trying to trap them. He's trying to force them to do something that they didn't want to do. He uses the term again a couple chapters later when he's talking about how the Jews were now persecuting him. Uh, Acts 29, 18, uh, 28, 19 And he says, but when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar. In other words, I did not have any other choice in the matter. I was forced to appeal to Caesar. So what we see here in Mark's narrative is that Jesus has actually caused the disciples to do something that's against their will. Is that weird? Is that something that kind of makes you feel uncomfortable? Why is he doing that? Why can't they just stick around until, you know, Jesus is ready to go? 
Why can't they wait until, you know, he's ready so they, they can all, all 13 of them, sail off to the other side? Mark kind of leaves us on the, in the dark on that, but John, uh, in his narrative, he fills us in on some details that might answer that question for us. Uh, in John chapter 6, verse 15, we see that Jesus saw that, quote, they, the people, the masses who were sticking around, they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. Interesting play on words there. See, Jesus hadn't come to establish an earthly kingdom, but that's what a lot of the early Jews were expecting. In fact, even John the Baptist was expecting an earthly kingdom. No, Jesus had come to establish the kingdom of God in the hearts of the faithful. But the disciples very likely would have been deterred from fulfilling their ultimate mission, which is, of course, the great commission, if they'd stuck around because they were expecting Jesus to be this earthly king. They're expecting him to overthrow the Roman Empire. He knew, though, he knew that they were just going to get in the way if they stuck around or they would get deterred. And so it's better that they just not be present. And besides, as we're going to see before we're done here, the disciples' hearts are very cold and distant from God at this point. So Jesus causes the disciples against their will, to get into the boat. And he dismisses the crowd and then immediately goes into the mountains to pray. How does he dismiss the crowd? We're not sure. But somehow he gets away from these people who are trying to force him, drag him away by force to be their king. And so he goes to the mountains to pray. He's doing, for the, same, uh, he's doing the same thing for himself that he had done for the 12 just earlier in this chapter. He's seeking some time alone. Some seclusion, isolation, some, some alone time with God for prayer. And I think that if, we're, if, we, if we take everything into account here, I think what we might be seeing here is Jesus fleeing from temptation. Jesus fleeing from temptation. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way that we have been. And I think that it's impossibly, uh, that it's entirely possible, if not likely, that he sees some temptation coming. Temptation to do something that he ultimately was not sent here to do. You know, they say that opportunity knocks once, right? But listen, temptation will knock and knock and knock and lean on the doorbell and go around the house and check for an open window. Temptation will get you if you can. And so Jesus is fleeing from temptation. He's, he's giving us an example, a perfect model of dealing with temptation, going alone, going into some place where he can be alone, because he knows what his purpose is. He knows that his purpose isn't to establish this earthly kingdom, right? He knows what he's supposed to be doing, and he's not interested in dealing with the temptation to reign over an earthly kingdom. So before it even becomes a serious temptation, he's out of there. He doesn't waste a whole lot of time. He gets out of there as quickly as he can. And the best place to go when facing temptation is a place where you can be away from that temptation in fellowship and prayer with God. Let's continue. Mark uh, 6, 47 and 48. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea. And he, Jesus, was alone on the land, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. I absolutely love this. Just this image right here, I love it. The disciples have been sent out into the sea. They've been sent out, as a matter of fact, into a storm because there are some hard winds that they're sailing right into. I mean, 
Like no matter how hard they would work, there's this resistance. Have you ever been there? Where it feels like no matter how hard you work, no matter what you do, you feel like you're just going nowhere. Straining at the oars. Man, I, for me, that is a feeling that I, I can definitely relate to. Uh, you know, I've found myself in frustrating situations uh, that seem to be going nowhere. And some of these situations honestly went on for, for years, went on for a really, really long time. And I may not have realized it completely at the time, but I can see in retrospect that that was God's plan, that he had put me into the middle of this situation where my efforts were just being revealed to be completely worthless and futile. Sent me out to this, you know, on a, on a little boat into a storm where I'd be working against the wind. But that's not the part of this story that I love about this. I relate to it, and it brings back some hard memories that I, I don't really get a, a warm, fuzzy feeling about when I think about it. No, what I love about this is that Jesus is completely aware of what's going on. He's completely aware of their predicament, their situation. From the mountain, he's completely aware of the fact that the disciples are struggling against the wind. He doesn't physically see them. It's the middle of the night. It's, it's dark outside. But he's aware. He's aware. The Sea of Galilee is this, this huge body of water, so it's not like he's looking down and seeing them uh, right next to the shore. Uh, you know, and, and they're not out in the geographical middle. Mark tells us they're in the middle of the sea. It's not the geographical middle, but it's out there. It's not near the shore. Matthew tells us that the boat was far away from land. That's from Matthew chapter 14, verse 24. John, who was, by the way, a fisherman by trade, and so who, you know, he had undoubtedly spent some nights fishing, all night long, you know, we see them uh, doing that in the Bible, in fact. Uh, so he's familiar with the geography and the topography of the Sea of Galilee. And John says uh, that they were three or four miles away from the shore. So we can dismiss uh, the idea that Jesus, Jesus didn't really walk on water. Uh, you know, we, we can try to dismiss it by saying he didn't really do that. You know, it was dark. They were probably right there on the shore. No, they weren't. No, they weren't. John would have known if they were right there on the shore. Matthew would have too. Matthew would have too. It wouldn't have been shocking for them because there were fishermen, four of them as a matter of fact, who were on this boat. No, they are out in the middle, three or four miles away from the shore in deep, deep water. And so finally, Mark tells us, Jesus comes to them at the fourth watch of the night. Now you can probably guess that that means it's late right? Uh, being that it's the fourth watch. It's not the first, second, or third watch. It's the fourth watch. So that, that must be pretty late. Now remember, this all started in the evening as the sun was going down. Now it's the fourth watch of the night. That would actually be somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And Jesus sent them out there as the sun was going down. So how many hours have they been out there? Eight or so? Eight, ten hours rowing against the wind? Now the wind hasn't endangered them, but I'm sure that it is frustrating them to death. And I'm sure it's exhausting them too. And here's the part that I really love. He comes to them. He comes to them. He's aware of their need. And he comes to them. He walks out on the water. And there's nothing that can prevent him from doing that. Not even gravity, right? There's, there's no, no force in the universe that can stop him from going out to them. Just like there's nothing that can prevent him from coming to you or me in the middle of our distress, our storms, our frustration with our situation. And there's something almost comical about this. 
Mark tells us that Jesus had the intention of passing by them. What? That's kind of weird, isn't it? Jesus has this intention of passing by them. I think our most, resp- uh, our most natural response is to say, well, yeah, there goes Jesus with that, uh, with that witty sense of humor again. You know, he sure loves to make those crazy disciples squeal, doesn't he? What a jokester. No, that's not what's going on here. That's, he's not trying to be funny. He's not being witty. He's making a point here. In the book of Exodus, there's a point when Moses and God are having this conversation. And God says to Moses in Exodus 33, 19, I myself will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. He's going to pass by Moses. And that's how Moses is going to know that this is God. Or the time when Jezebel has promised to do some really mean and nasty things to Elijah. And so Elijah uh, packs up and runs for the hills, wishing that he was dead. And finally he comes to this cave and decides to set up camp there where he encounters the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord says to him, says to Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah responds, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Look at how the word of the Lord responds to that. First Kings chapter 19, verse 11. So he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. He's going to pass by in the wind. But he's not in the wind. It's hard to miss that parallel, isn't it? It's hard to miss the parallel. Jesus, by intending to pass by them, is claiming, I am Jehovah. I am God. I am the one who created all this. It's a perfect parallel here. Now, there might be a strong wind here, but it's not slowing Jesus down. Maybe it's because he's not even in the wind. Maybe. Now, if you're in this boat and Jesus is walking on the water right past you, what do you do? He's intending to pass you by. You know, he, he's starting to do it. What do you do? I mean, I, I think that I would say, I think that I would say, Jesus, over here, come over here and help us. We're over here. As, as if he wouldn't already know, right? The Sea of Galilee is huge. He just happens to be walking right by them. He knows that they're there, but that's not their response. They don't react that way. Mark chapter 6, verses 49 and 50. But they saw him walking on the sea. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, let me get this straight. You've seen Jesus cast out unclean spirits, you've seen. Hundreds of people come to Jesus with sicknesses and all kinds of diseases, and Jesus heals them. You've seen Jesus still the waters on the sea before, and you're freaking out here? 
You're, you're freaking out? Right after seeing him feed 15 to 25,000 people, which is maybe the greatest miracle he's performed up to this point, you're freaking out about that? About seeing him walking on the water? Seriously? And they don't even think it's him. They don't think it's Jesus. They think it's a ghost. There's a different word for spirit. They don't even think it's his spirit. They just think it's a ghost. The problem is that once again, rather than focusing on Jesus here, they're focusing on the task at hand. They're focusing on their situation rather than focusing on Jesus. I mean, how did they think he was going to get home? They've left in there. And the thing is, they don't even think it's him as a ghost. They just think it's a ghost. See, what they've done here, too bad Jim's not here, he's a fisherman. What they've done here is they've resorted. Oh, he's out on a boat right now. They've resorted to the superstitions of fishermen. They've resorted to these ridiculous superstitions. And we all know it's bad luck to be superstitious, right? I mean, they are extremely superstitious, fishermen are. And they've, apparently, they've been that way for at least 2,000 years. Uh, if you watch Deadliest Catch, uh, you see that fishermen have tons of superstitions, really silly superstitions, like uh, biting the head off of some type of fish before they you know, pull up anchor, and uh, all kinds of silly superstitions that really you know, are, are kind of funny when you think about it. But that's what these guys have resorted to superstitions. And they're so freaked out by it, they scream like a bunch of girly men. Ah! These macho fishermen are screaming like a bunch of little girls. They're crying for their mamas. Oh, I'd love to be back home with my mom right now. Because Jesus is walking on the water right next to them. These guys hadn't learned to expect the unexpected from Jesus yet. Which, which is amazing in and of itself. That, that I think, would take a miracle. To, to not be convinced yet. But that's why they're terrified. Rather than looking to Jesus in the middle of their struggle, they were looking at what they could do. They were looking at their own efforts. They were looking at themselves. They didn't even expect Jesus to show up. But the beautiful thing here, and I don't want you to miss this, the beautiful thing here is that Jesus' compassion is always greater than our lack of faith in him. His compassion is always, always so much greater than lack of faith. And it's greater than their lack of faith in him in this moment. And despite their lack of faith, despite their weakness, despite uh, the fact that it says that these guys are all freaking out and screaming like a bunch of girly men, Jesus comes to them and he's trying to console them, trying to comfort them. He says, don't be afraid, it's me. That's actually not what he says. That's what it says in the English. That's what the English translation says. But in the Greek, he says something that is much more revealing, much more profound, something that will shake the unbelieving person to the core of their very being. He says, ego I me. That doesn't mean it is me. It, it, it can, but it's much more significant when Jesus uses these words, ego I me. Those are the words that God uses to identify himself. It means I am. It means I am. When, of course, you know, those are the words that God used to identify himself. When Moses asked him, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I'll say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? And God's response was, You shall say to the sons of Israel, I am 
has sent me to you. When Jesus, in the book of John, offends the Jews by saying, before Abraham was, I am, he says, ego, I me. I am. And they know what the significance of it is because after that they try to kill him for blaspheming God. And so here Jesus says, don't be afraid. I am. Ego, I me. Three short sentences. Take courage. I am. Don't be afraid. Now our our knowledge and awareness of God's presence gives us every reason we should need to be courageous And leave fear at the wayside. The reality is that our fears are often just irrational. That's what we see here. Their fears are irrational. After the release of the movie Jaws, there was this irrational fear that people had of going near uh, near water. Uh, There were reports of people who wouldn't go to the beaches anymore. I don't know if this is true. Maybe it's just an urban legend, but apparently there were people who would not even go in their swimming pools in their backyard after they saw the movie Jaws. Is that an irrational fear? Let's talk about the facts. How many shark attacks are there actually worldwide in an average year? Worldwide, there are actually somewhere between 25 and 30. Compare that to the number of dog bites that there are every year. Well over 4.5 million dog bites every year. And you can see how silly it is to be fearful of a shark attack, so fearful that you won't go into a swimming pool or even the ocean, but you'll go walking out in the neighborhood when there are dogs out there. The point is that when we're fearful, it's often that we're, we're focusing on ourselves and our situation rather than on Jesus. We need to think clearly. We need to remember that Jesus has promised never to leave us or forsake us. How big is your God? Is he big enough to help you in your situation, whatever it might be? If you don't think he's big enough to come to you and protect you in the middle of a storm in your life, let me tell you, your idea of God is too small. The disciples apparently still had a pretty small view of God. Definitely a small view of Jesus. Look at what happens next. Verses 51 and 52. Then he, Jesus, got into the boat with them, And the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Their heart was hardened. Did you notice that they didn't even ask Jesus to get into the boat with them? He says this, take courage, I am, don't be afraid, and they're just sitting there. There's no invitation issued to him to get into the boat. But he gets into the boat anyway. He gets in on his own. And as soon as he does, the wind stops. The forces that were preventing them from effectively moving forward are suddenly gone. And notice that this is on Jesus' timing, his time frame, his schedule, not on that of the disciples. Not when they wanted it, not when they necessarily even most needed it, but when Jesus is ready. He gets into the boat and the wind stops. And let's not miss the fact that the the disciples rejoice at his presence. They're never going to doubt again. All of their questions are answered. Their lack of faith is more than compensated for. And they all live happily ever after, right? Not quite. Yeah, the end. Not quite. That's That's not what happens. In fact, Mark tells us that they were utterly astonished. And this word astonished 
Another interesting Greek word. This is the same term that we saw when Jesus' family came to pull him away from his ministry. And they're saying that he has lost his mind. Yeah, that's the same word that Mark's using here. Losing one's mind. Being outside of one's self. So the disciples didn't just lose their minds. They utterly, they had utterly lost their minds at this point. Maybe it's something close to uh, temporary insanity. That's where they are. Why? Because they're faced with the reality that Jesus was Lord. That Jesus was superior to them and that he had an authority that they could not even dream about having. They're confronted and they're offended by recognizing their need for him. Now remember... They had felt like they were Jesus' equal, but after Jesus miraculously uh, fed you know, the thousands and thousands of people, they started to realize that Jesus could do things that they couldn't. Were they jealous? No. No, they coveted his authority. They coveted his authority and his power in their hearts. Remember, they weren't jealous because that authority and that power was never theirs to begin with. It's not theirs. It belongs to Jesus They're coveting what belongs to God, what belongs to Jesus. And Mark tells us that even though they witnessed what Jesus had done by multiplying the loaves of the bread and the fish, they hadn't learned anything from it. All because their hearts were hardened. That's almost, that's hard to believe, isn't it? You would think that their best option would just be in awe of Jesus and what he's capable of doing and to surrender to him even more. But instead, they're bitter. Their hearts are hardened. And that, my friends, that's the power of pride. Even though all this stuff happened right before their eyes, they still couldn't bring themselves to take that final step of faith and just trust in Jesus because their hearts were far away from God. You see, the lesson from the feeding of, the, of all the people, the multitudes, should have been that Jesus can provide for our greatest needs and for our smallest needs. That was what the lesson was, but it hadn't registered with them. It hadn't registered with the disciples. If it had, they wouldn't have been going out of their minds when Jesus walked on the water up to their boat and climbed in. See, it's, it's, it's one thing to not believe because of a misunderstanding that's not what's going on here. It's it's not just a misunderstanding. This is simply hard-hearted refusal to believe. This is rebellion. Jesus gave them a test. He gave them a lesson in relying on him. He tested them on what he had taught them, on the material covered, and they failed. F. Failed miserably, in fact. Now, let's just be honest for a moment here. When life isn't easy, when we find ourselves in the midst of a difficult situation in life, a storm, if you will, or maybe a situation that just seems impossible, it's easy for us to lose focus and to either start questioning God or to focus on what we ourselves are capable of doing, right? I mean, we we might even accuse God of not living up to his promises. You know, wait wait a minute, God, didn't you say, for I know the plans that I have for you, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope? Because God, I'm being honest with you here, I am not seeing that right now. The truth is, if we're asking questions like that, 
we're not all that much unlike the disciples here. Coveting from the God who's feeling jealous for our hearts. If we're asking that question, we need to check our heart. Because if it's far away from God, while we're coveting from God, He's jealous. We might be coveting what we perceive to be His comfort, failing to realize that in the midst of our storm, He's right there with us. He knows what's going on. He's right there with us. We might be coveting His power, failing to realize that He might not have given us the power to stop the storm, but that His presence with us gives us the strength and the peace to endure it. In the midst of our coveting, He's saying, don't you know that I am jealous for your heart? Your heart is so far away from me. Don't you know I'm jealous? Turn your heart back to me. Take your attention off of yourself and trust in me. You're mine. How can you not believe that I would care for you and provide for you in the moment of your greatest need? Or maybe even not your greatest need. Greatest, smallest need? He cares about them all. May we never covet from God. The storms in life will come. Maybe Jesus will have even sent us into that storm but those storms won't last. So are you rowing against the wind and going nowhere? Listen, sometimes Jesus will intentionally put us into that type of situation. He's taught us something and He wants to test us on it. And the winds will rise up against us from time to time. And it's not to frustrate it, it's it's to teach us. It's to teach us. And so when the winds do rise against us, when we feel like a situation's hopeless, Let's remember that Jesus is perfectly aware of our situation. And let it serve as a reminder that maybe we're the ones who are in need of refocusing. Instead of focusing on the situation, we should be focusing on the one who can still the storm and overcome the situation. You see, this isn't a story about a miraculous rescue. The disciples aren't going to die. Their lives aren't in danger. They're going to get to the other side eventually. Eventually, you know, they're working against the wind. They're straining at the oars, but they're not going to die. And it's not a dangerous storm. It's not a story about rescue. This This is a story about Jesus revealing himself as the great I Am. The God of all creation and how he sees us working against the winds, going nowhere fast, and he comes down beside us. He's aware of our situation. He comes down beside us, bringing us comfort, teaching us to trust in Him completely. This is a picture of the futility of human effort apart from God and His sovereignty in the lives of His people. And isn't it good to know we're not defined by our failures? This guy who got 7 out of 60 correct on this test Let me tell you, I would do worse than him. Because I was looking at these and I'm like, I'd get a zero. We're not defined by our failures in God's eyes. No, he loves us. He wants to refine us. So how could we ever not give our full devotion and obedience to Jesus? He came and showed us that God isn't just this distant God who's far away and doesn't really relate to us, doesn't really care about us. He came to show us that God cares deeply for us. 
and loves us intensely and intimately. He doesn't just present himself as someone. Jesus isn't just saying, you know, I'm, I'm a good person or I'm a good teacher. He, pre- he presents himself as somebody who can give you more than, you know, a piece of good advice on some occasions. He's presenting himself as the one, the only one, who's worthy of our devotion, our obedience, and our worship. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are such a good and loving God, that you're not far away, but that you sent your Son to be like one of us, to show us that you are deeply concerned about our greatest and our smallest needs. God, we thank you for the tests in life because they reveal to us, sometimes in the present, sometimes in retrospect, they reveal to us where we are with you. And they show us our need to trust more in you. God, I just pray that you would increase all of our faith through the storms in life, that you would teach us to walk closer to you, to look first to you rather than ourselves. Thank you so much for loving us, Lord, for saving us out of that love, and for being jealous for our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.